Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? episode is going to be a little bit different. A vacation from the vicious, a reprieve from the repugnant. What else I got? A diversion from the dastardly. Bank robberies have forever been romanticized. I have a lot of interest in the characters who do it right. A well-planned, clean, in-and-out style heist where nobody is hurt or overly threatened. Completed swiftly and with class on the part of those bold enough to burst through the doors wearing fake beards and dark sunglasses as a thing of beauty to me. The stakes are so high, the penalty so severe if caught. Aside from my clear bias, being a rather questionable character myself, it should be said that bank robberies are definitely a frightening experience for those in the bank during one. Most criminals are stupid. That's why they're taking such a wild chance, and when things inevitably begin to go wrong for them, due to poor planning and execution, they panic and start hurting people. This is not going to be one of those stories where a robbery goes horribly wrong and innocent people are destroyed for no good reason. Sure, the act of pulling a gun and threatening violence is egregious and traumatizing to those on the receiving end of the demands. Firing a weapon while being pursued by the law isn't the classiest of moves either, but honestly, drawing this crew of bandits that I'm about to lay out before you was about as lucky as you can get if you were in the wrong bank at the wrong time during the 70s and very early 80s. Certain bank robbers fall into a category similar to that of one who chooses to commit suicide, in my opinion. Many will judge them to be cowards, people who can't face the trials of life and opt for a quick fix. But I'm willing to bet the house that those who cast these judgments would never find the guts to pick up a gun and attempt to take control of their own fate should the cards of the desperate land on their side of the table. In fact, I doubt they'd even have the depth of character necessary to seriously consider such options. Sitting pretty with an education, money in the bank, a head full of steam buoyed by good health and sound support systems is a hell of a high perch to cast stones from, while those you aim at try to muster up the bravado to reverse the momentum of unimpressive misfortune they've battled and submitted to in life, eventually slowly fading away into obscurity before rising up and laying it all on the line. In a last gasp effort, feel free. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is S2, E11. Stop watch Steve. Stephen Reed was born March 13, 1950, in a small Canadian town named Massey. 
located amongst the wilderness of northern Ontario. He was one of nine children born into a stable enough situation, though his father worked as hard as he drank, and his mother was stretched thin tending to her litter, but by all accounts, Stephen was well cared for and loved. It wasn't until he turned 11 that life started yanking young Stephen into murky waters. Already easy to miss amongst his brothers and sisters, Stephen started disappearing in the evenings. When asked about his new habit of stealing away following dinner, Steve would claim that he had joined a hockey league. He certainly seemed worn out when he returned from the frequent practices and games, so not much was thought of the boy's sudden mood change and scarcity at the time. Two years would pass and the young man's behavior became increasingly odd and unlike what those who knew him had come to expect. Then suddenly, without warning, he was gone. Stephen Reed runs away from home at the age of 13. He leaves a secret behind him that will propel an incredible life of crime, the likes of which is only paralleled by one man who he'd grow to trust and eventually carry out with one of the most incredible bank-robbing sprees on record. Patrick Mitchell, better known as Patty, was born nine years before his future partner in crime. Like Stephen, Patty came from a large family, though rather than learning to sink or swim out in the woods, Patty took his first criminal steps on the streets of Ottawa's Little Italy. By age 14, he'd already entered the system on an assault charge, and by the time he's run the gamut of juvie, Patty has decided that incarceration is not enough of a deterrent for his underworld aspirations. Patty is a born leader. His sharp intellect paired with disarming charm and good looks are a wicked combination, and by the age of 20, he's running a little gang that specializes in well-planned and flawlessly executed thefts. It turns out that Patty has an incredible mind for finding the weak spots and any obstruction that keeps him and his crew away from a payday. He is also quite lucky, as his moniker suggests, but the main thing that keeps Patty off the radar is that early on he adopts a respectable lifestyle. Patty gets married and has a child at the age of 21. He takes work as a delivery driver for a soda company, Pure Springs, and over the next decade will continue to run his little scams with his crew to supplement his income. The job as a delivery driver lending him plenty of intel on businesses in the Ottawa area some of which are more than primed to be picked by the preposterously precocious and perfectly projected prim and proper soda pop provider, Patty Mitchell. Back to Stephen Reed. While Patty blooms into the rare form that will eventually take lead of a perfect crew that's still trending in fate towards him, Stephen battles a demon that was literally injected into him back in the woods of northern Ontario. His runaway from home has turned into a full-fledged sprint towards sure doom. Stephen is addicted to drugs. He makes his way to Vancouver, where he begins selling the amphetamines of which he'll soon develop a $500 a day habit. His travels take him to Seattle and San Francisco, his street sense sharpening, the harsh realities of the underbelly galvanizing him rather than wearing him away like most. An insatiable addiction spurs him on, an addiction that was cultivated in the back seat of a fancy 1950-style vehicle of which he endured many an evening in while his family believed him to be out scoring goals and making passes. You see, the terrible truth is that Young Stephen had caught the eye of the town physician at the age of 11, and the only passes being made in what should have been the carefree evenings of his youth were those initiated by the middle-aged doctor who had stolen our anti-hero's innocence by injecting him with morphine most nights and using the boy to fulfill his own perverse desires. A secret Stephen Reed would keep tightly locked away and would only begin to consider trying to recall the combination required to retrieve it much later in his adult life, when his long list of notable actions came under the introspective microscope, hard time, and utterly forces the journeyman con to look into. A quick word from Stephen Reed here. You know, I learned things as a kid that, you know, children should never have to learn. It's 1971. 
Stephen Reed is now in his early 20s, the age Patty Mitchell chose to start a family and slow roll a criminal career. Reed doesn't have that kind of patience. He robs a bank and is caught like the majority of prospective bandits are. 60% by some estimates, a number that may seem low but in reality when it comes to solved crime is fairly high, up there with murder and assault convictions. That percentage rises even higher if you consider that eventually a thief gets caught. One more big score always looms around the corner in the mind of a degenerate. It appears that the criminal career of Stephen Reed is over before it has a chance to pick up steam. He's sent away to Kingston Penitentiary to begin a 10-year sentence. Meanwhile, Patty Mitchell is beginning to tire of his delivery job in Ottawa. He's 30 now, and getting bored with the whole family man routine as well. A new friend has come into his life, and it turns out meeting Lionel Wright will be the catalyst for Patty shedding his domesticated skin. Lionel is a mousy character, a loner who still lives at home. He's completely unassuming a reserved intellectual type who spends his evenings watching TV intermittently over the top of a novel, speaking only to beat his mother to the punch and solving Wheel of Fortune puzzles. Lionel works as a clerk by day at a warehouse of which Patty makes deliveries on occasion. Most overlook the nondescript Lionel who, outside of balding prematurely and wearing the same white shirt, dark pants, and blue vinyl jacket every day, is basically of zero note to general society aside from a rare few who gleam that Lionel is a quirky cat. Patty begins providing this character with pornography after a few conversations, and soon they're fast friends. When Patty loses his delivery job after spearheading a strike attempt, Lionel springs into action and begins suggesting ways for Patty to lift items from the warehouse he works at. The two soon put their heads together, Patty's luscious locks more than ample enough to keep both their pates warm for the first of many brainstorms the two will share. Soon enough, Patty is making large scores, fencing shipments of liquor from the warehouse that Lionel Wright manages to cover up the disappearance of with fancy paperwork for a while. This goes on for some time before the company begins to suspect there's a rat in Clean's house. Lionel picks up work at another warehouse, but this time he and Patty go with a more long-term and sustainable plan. Lionel will tip Patty off to the expensive shipments, and Patty will use a crew to occasionally rob the trucks on the road. It's 1973, and Patty Mitchell is well on his way to becoming a force in the underworld of Ottawa. He never dared to be until making this contact with steady old Lionel Wright. He didn't know it yet, but the twosome now only required a third trusted member. Someone to be the muscle. Someone without much to lose, but concerned enough with losing what little they still had. They needed a crew member with wrecking balls to help break down the walls of bigger job. Stephen Reed has been behaving himself in prison. Two years into a sentence and around the same time Lionel and Patty are beginning to raise their schemes out of infancy, Stephen, who has taken over the role of managing prisoner extracurriculars, organizing competitive sports, doing upkeep on the yard, upgrading equipment, etc., convinces the warden to allow him to attend a seminar in Ottawa regarding inmate recreation. His request is approved and a couple of guards are assigned to escort Stephen, who has been a model prisoner thus far, seemingly destined for early release a favorite of the staff and fellow inmates. After the seminar, Steve manages to charm the guards into stopping for some Chinese food. Remember, this is 1973. Regulations were pretty lax, so the guards agree. They sit at a table with the prisoner, who isn't even cuffed, and when Stephen requests to use the washroom, they allow him to go, keeping an eye on the bathroom door as it shuts behind him. They give their prisoner maybe ten minutes before checking on him. When they do, they find an open window. Stephen Reed is loose on the streets of Ottawa. He quickly makes friends with the local underground and by the end of the day has a place to stay. It's not long before he runs into Patty Mitchell, who takes a shine to the young escape bank robber. 
of his first impression of Patty, Reed would later share, quote, I wasn't in awe, but I was taken with him. Patty, who dressed well, offered to lend Reed clothes as they were about the same size, 5'9 or so. Steve was blown away when the outfits were presented. One held a price tag, giving away the fact that Patty had gone out of his way to purchase basically a new wardrobe rather than grab a few unwanted items from the closet. Stephen proves to be the missing piece of the crew. Lionel, who Stephen would later describe as the most solid criminal he'd ever met, with an uncanny memory and attention to detail, enjoys the company of this new addition, which for Patty, who knew well that Lionel was a staunch and untrusting introvert, spoke volumes about Stephen and confirmed his own good feelings. Patty trims the fad of the cohorts surrounding him and boils the crew down to just these two men, Stephen Reed and Lionel Wright. Reed and Wright, a fitting duo as Stephen would prove to be a talented writer in later years, and Lionel read just about anything he'd get his hands on. Lionel, in fact, became an encyclopedia of criminal knowledge for the crew, learning everything that may have come in handy down the line, from hot-wiring cars to fake identification, police and bank protocols, anything that possibly could be overlooked. You could be certain that Lionel had spotted it and squared it before it even began to dance in the periphery of Patty and Stephen's thought process. And that's saying a lot, as Patty and Steve were both brilliant in their own way as well. Patty always had a plan, one that needed ever be questioned by his crew as they knew he'd covered and sanded down every angle of it before laying it on the table. Lionel was a logistics guy. He also proved to be extremely calm in the heat of a robbery, unlike Patty, but we'll get to that in a moment. Stephen was the man up front when it came to execution. He had nerves of steel, was quick on his feet, and could adjust without error to whatever invariable flew the crew's way. Once Stephen was in, you could be sure that he was coming out with his hands full, and any witness left behind, posing as a statue with his hands up. And so it begins. The scheme of knocking off trucks continues, Lionel from his little desk at the warehouse, directing just about everything. Patty's connections keep them flushing cash with each fence of the goods, but soon the crew are craving a larger score. They begin to hit banks. Patty's plan always involves landing the largest takeaway possible. The average five to seven grand that's typical of most act of desperation heists is not this crew's style. They learn all they can about a potential mark before going in, and when they do, they're in and out rarely escaping with less than 50 grand. Initially, the small-framed and short-statured Lionel Wright is assigned getaway driver duty, usually waiting patiently out front in a stolen car while the big dogs bark orders in the bank. But it soon becomes obvious that Patty is uncomfortable under the bright lights. After his gun gets caught in his underwear during one incident, causing a dangerous lapse in execution of a robbery, Lionel is subbed in which ends up being a stroke of genius, as Lionel raises zero alarm in the minds of guards due to his demure and therefore disarming presence. He also proves to be extremely efficient and calm under pressure, which, as a byproduct, works to calm Stephen, and soon gives the gang a reputation for carrying out their criminal activities in a polite and expedient manner, a trait that maybe helps in keeping public outcry to a curious murmur. We'll go into more detail later about one exceptional, awe-inspiring heist the soon-to-be-dubbed stopwatch gang performed south of the border. This crew was thought to be responsible for upwards of 140 bank robberies during the 70s. I obviously can't cover them all, so I've chosen two outstanding incidents. The first of which we'll get to after I take a sip of this crow. It keeps looking at me all sweaty at the corner of my desk here, and I'm losing my voice for some fucking reason. Hands up.
April 17, 1974. Lionel Wright has passed some juicy information on Stephen Patty about a gold delivery sitting overnight in a barely guarded cargo hold of the Ottawa airport. A shady Air Canada employee is the one to pass this nugget to Lionel. He asks that he be reimbursed with a couple of literal ones for his trouble. Patty Mitchell quickly comes up with a plan, which of course will star his prize partner, Stephen Reed. Steve had this to say about Patty's undisputed role as mastermind. Quote, You leave something like that with Patty overnight, come back the next day, he'll tell you how to do it. Soon enough, this insight proves true. Stephen is given a Air Canada parka and fake employee ID badge. When the gang receives word that the gold is in holding, Patty and Lionel drop Steve off for work and wait patiently in a stolen green station wagon as Reed calmly makes his way through airport security. Within minutes, he's knocking on the door of the cargo hold. The clock is about to strike midnight. Reed pulls his gun and prepares to single-handedly perform a near-million-dollar gold heist. A lone security guard greets Stephen, who pushes his way into the warehouse and disarms the bewildered watchman before he can even offer coffee. Stephen demands the key for the cage that holds the gold. The guard informs him that the key is kept overnight at the main terminal. Undeterred, Steve marches his captive to a repair shop where he finds bolt cutters. He then handcuffs the guard to a metal pipe and places a cardboard box over his head to limit observation as he eventually gains access to the 16 by 10 foot cage holding the gold. He loads what turns out to be about 800,000 Canadian dollars worth of bullion onto a metal cart. He covers it up, then exits the airport without so much as a second glance from witnesses. It takes 25 minutes, longer than expected, but the gang is back at their hideout by 1 a.m., richer than they'd ever been, and already scheming about their next move. Investigators suspect the heist to be an inside job. While Patty unloads the gold to some California mobsters at an absolutely criminal discount, the heat turns up on Air Canada employees. The gang, meanwhile, uses their funds to enter the cocaine smuggling business, giving us some ideas to exactly how brazen this crew was. Unfortunately, they'd failed to consider one wild card. Although Lionel had been perfectly clear in the expectation for their airport contact to continue behaving as he always had, the Air Canada employee, who is now being used to help with the gang's blossoming drug business, draws the attention of investigators when he begins making splashy purchases slightly outside of his pay grade. It's not long before the bougie baggage handler is brought in and convinced that giving up those responsible for the gold heist is in his best interest. Patty, Lionel, and Stephen are collected one by one and tucked away in prison, each facing two decades. It seemed time had run out for the stopwatch gang. Incredibly, though, Stephen Reed had yet to even compress the button on his trademark timepiece and initiate the wild escapades which would eventually inspire the FBI to hand out the catchy moniker to a mysterious and marauding crew of relentless bank robbers that were soon due to terrorize the California coast, sometimes made up in gaudy disguises, sometimes cloaked with masks portraying crooked presidents. The three now infamous Canadian thieves would first have to escape from prison in order to materialize south of the border and capture their destiny, a daunting task of which, incredibly, little Lionel Wright is the first to complete. It's nothing fancy. Lionel allegedly finds a hole in a fence and squirms his way to freedom. He escapes to Dundee, Florida, where a hotel aptly named the Shamrock hires Lionel. They ask him no questions, and he tells them no lies, other than his real name, of course, which changes so much over time that I won't bother tossing one of his aliases out there. Meanwhile, Patty and Steve are finding it a little more difficult to get loose. They've been sent to Millhaven, one of Canada's most secure and violent prisons at the time. In fact, on their first day out in the yard, a fellow inmate is beaten to death with a metal pipe. 
The two decide to begin working out, preparing their bodies for an escape. They jog five miles a day and get in pull-ups anywhere they can. The plan is to scale the fence in an area of the yard that seems to hold an oft-unmanned tower. This attempt fails and ends in tragedy when one of their accomplices is shot off the top of the fence by a guard who had been assigned to the area after all. The young man was a bank robber at Quebec on the top of the goddamn fence. He kept going. He just kept going. Patty and Steve backed off when they saw the guard, and this guy tried to go for it, got shot, end up hung up on the fence, bled out dead. The next opportunity comes when an old, unused, and locked-up shed in the grounds is broken into, and a tunnel begins to be dug by a rotating crew of ambitious inmates. Patty and Steve are likely the ringleaders of this mission, a mission that takes months, but eventually they're under the tennis courts and only yards from the fence. The heat that summer would prove to be brutal, and the asphalt of the court soon begins to cave slightly. Guards take notice, and the tunnel is soon discovered. Regardless of quite probably being saved from a potential collapse, all inmates involved are still pretty crushed. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs, 
If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Patty and Steve decide that their only chance is to behave and get transferred to a medium security prison. They spend the next two years doing so. Lionel continues to serve as a clerk of the Shamrock, patiently waiting for his pals to figure it out. And in 1978, nearly three years into their sentences, they finally do. Stephen is the next to go. He's transferred to Joyceville Prison, a medium security institution, where he takes on duties once again as recreation manager for inmates and even starts participating in haircutting classes and learns a little woodworking to boot. It's not clear which of these three activities earned Steve another day trip for a seminar of sorts, but incredibly, he finds himself in the exact same situation that led him to escape the first time. He convinces his guard to take him out for lunch. This time it's fish and chips, and after further invoking his off-the-charts charm to casually excuse himself to the washroom, his guard, the affable Officer Houston, is soon approached by the waitress who asks if she should wrap up his companion's order. Why would you do that? The guard queries to which the waitress replied that she just watched his meal partner exit at the back door. This no doubt causes a gad dang it to escape Houston's lips, followed by his hat maybe being crushed in his hands and smacked over his knee before muttering to himself, Houston, we got ourselves a problem. Three months later in November of 1979, Patty, who also has behaved his way into medium security, receives a visit from his brother, who has a message from Stephen. The message is to initiate their plan and that tonight is the night. The plan for Patty was, as per usual, concocted by Patty himself. He begins soaking cigarettes in a tall glass of water. He's learned that symptoms of a major heart attack can be mimicked by drinking the nicotine-laced agua after it had been thoroughly steeped. He downs the concoction before yard time and sets off on his usual jog around the fence line. Guards are soon summoned to take one look at the collapsed inmate, and the plan rolls out like a red carpet. He's placed in an ambulance, showing classic signs of a heart attack, and soon hears the driver complaining of an issue at the emergency room doors. Stephen Reed never admits to having a part in this caper, but this is clearly his handiwork. The sign directs all emergencies down a nearby alleyway. The ambulance follows the order as their patient isn't doing so hot. Patty has consumed way too much of the nicotine juice and is actually in the grips of a legitimate medical emergency. The ambulance is met by two men in white coats back in the alley, both wearing surgeon masks. The medics jump out and begin retrieving Patty for transfer. This is when guns are drawn. It's believed that Stephen Reed and Patty's brother Bobby are the ones who steal Patty away from the hospital this day. Patty is piled into a getaway vehicle and rushed off to a hideout where it's alleged that he almost died from nicotine poisoning. Apparently, death is avoided when Stephen pours a bottle of wine down Patty's throat, which remedies the matter. The story goes that Patty was on death's door, and Stephen was starting to get so certain of his partner's inevitable demise that he was making plans to utilize a hacksaw to dismember Patty in order to get rid of his highly incriminating body. This is when he tried the wine trick, which apparently provoked Patty to sit straight up and spit out a black ball of tar. A total bullshit story in my opinion, but this is a storyteller we're dealing with here. Stephen Reed is one of those guys that you allow to embellish a bit. Non-fiction, no matter how compelling, is boring to those that actually happen to after a while. Steve likes a little salt on his steak. I myself try to catch a grain to go with his side stories when he sprinkles a pinch off his elbow. 
1979. Stephen returns the favor Patty paid him on his first escape and takes care of the financials. A meticulously grown and well-pruned grapevine has found its way from Florida to Patty's inner circle, and soon the old crew is reunited at the Shamrock Inn. Lionel, who hasn't smiled genuinely in years, can't help but crack wide open when he first sees his old pals. Everything has been taken care of. The boys shack up in a beach house. Patty is told to rest and recover. He does so, fishing and charming all the pretty girls on the beach. Meanwhile, Reed and Wright get to work. They begin successfully robbing banks around Florida. When the heat begins to rise, they gather Patty out of the sand and head to Sedona, Arizona, where they set up shop in a beautiful cabin. They pose as California transplants, looking to get away from it all while they manage a rock and roll light show company from a distance. Sedona welcomes the three charming strangers with open arms. They're extremely generous, paying for everything in cash, crisp, clean bills, and by all accounts are treated like royalty in Arizona. They, of course, are required to head back to California on business occasionally. They do this by private plane. Every time they return, the party ramps back up. It's a glorious and memorable era for the party types living in Sedona circa 1980, a place with a population of just over 5,000 people at the time. It will later shock this community that the California boys, who they thought they knew so well, were in reality a crew of escaped Canadian criminals, using Sedona as a hideout while robbing multiple banks along the West Coast. The FBI can't believe their eyes. Across California, two men, captured thus far only on security cameras, have been politely entering banks, expertly calming customers, and clearly instructing employees how to behave before exiting with large amounts of money usually a number north of $100,000, an unheard of average and a tally only possible to be obtained by those possessing intimate knowledge of the bank's routines. The apparent leader wears a large stopwatch around his neck. As a result, no robbery has lasted longer than two minutes, an impossible to match response time for local police. It doesn't take long for an agent to dub the crew the stopwatch gang. Things are truly running like clockwork for Patty, Lionel, and Stephen. They can't spend the money fast enough. They go bananas in Vegas on the regular. Steve and Patty pick up every single bill that lands within 15 feet of them. Lionel, who has no habits other than keeping his shit and now his crew's shit together, splurges and buys a $25,000 gold watch, mainly just to get rid of some of the cash. The trio stashes 300 grand in a safe deposit box. They spend like crazy otherwise. It's estimated that by the time they're through, the stopwatch gang will have stolen and spent in excess of $12 million. There does come a moment where the gang considers their future. To this point, it's been full speed ahead, but now they're in foreign territory. They could actually make it, they realize. It's entirely possible that they could get plastic surgery, claim retirement status in a place similar to Sedona, or even just stay in Sedona itself, and live out their lives riding the residuals from the wave of cash they've siphoned. If they can invest it wisely, of course. Try legit business ventures. Maybe avoid ideas like cocaine smuggling startups that run through a recently heisted airport, perhaps. I know it's probably fairly common knowledge by now how easy it used to be to change one's identity. But the stopwatch gang did it so frequently, including this time leading up to their biggest job in September of 1980, that I think it's worth noting. Lionel would search the obituaries for someone who had been born in one state and died in another. They would have to match the age and loosely fit the description of himself or one of his pals. Then he would apply for a replacement birth certificate in the home state, claiming it had been lost. This issuing office usually would have no record of a death occurring if it had happened outside the home state, so for a fee, they would send out the replacement birth certificate. Lionel would then use this valid no-photo ID to obtain all kinds of identification, including major credit cards. 
The stopwatch gang abused these aliases for the purpose of, say, renting vehicles that were key in their heists. Often they'd apply for short-term jobs that led to short-term bank accounts, leading to recon missions which aided their enormous success rate in draining financial institutions. For that day, of course, not entirely impossible. Once done with an identity, they could further screw the system by racking up their cards on purchases before abandoning the identity. Just a real wonderland for the intelligent criminal the 70s was. We'll never see a riper age for the scumbag again. You ever hear someone say, Hey, it was the 70s, man. <laughs> the 70s, man. Pretty much where everything went wrong. The 50s, everyone's flying high off that World War II champagne. The 60s tries to temper the party and get everyone on the same page. Then the 70s. The 70s was a reminder that we're fucking animals who wear clothes and brush our teeth. The stopwatch gang is a pure product of the 70s. They can't slow down. They're going to ride this boat into the rocks. It's not their intention to do so, of course. No crew in the history of the world has intentionally sunk their ship with every hope for their future firmly secured to the inside of the hull. A story with no end in sight will end regardless. And if those who make up the narrative won't tie it up, fate will. Lionel, Patty, and Stephen were about to find this out the hard way. September 23rd, 1980. The big job. Bank of America, San Diego. Lionel Wright looks good. Feels good. He sports a blonde wig that complements his brown goatee. Between the two hair pieces, a set of reflective glasses sits snug above his nose. The light-colored suit he wears fits perfectly. He looks like a man who probably needs the services of a bank. He approaches a booth adorned with deposit and withdrawal slips and begins to act busy. Stopwatch Stephen, who, in his dark suit to match his dark sunglasses, hair, and beard, is already sitting on a sofa outside the loans department, rifling nonchalantly through notes on his fancy-looking briefcase, casually looks up as his trusted compadre enters the building. Patty Mitchell sits outside in a robin's egg blue rental sedan. The sides of the vehicle sport yellow stripes. These stripes are made of yellow tape. Tape that the crew was strapped on to create a witness description that can be easily erased from the vehicle once the heist is completed. The same idea goes for their gaudy disguises. Draws the eye. Descriptions are way off. The plan this time has been months in the making. It's basically an armored car heist that will be performed inside the bank. As per the gang's tedious calculation, the pickup should be occurring within the next five minutes. Unfortunately for them, today's not like the other days they've observed. The armored truck is late. Stephen continues studying his notes, notes that maybe explain how an air conditioner works or how a golf ball is made. Lionel has a much more awkward role to play. It's conceivable that Stephen is preparing for a meeting about financials and such, but at Lionel's station, things are getting ridiculous. How many fucking deposit slips can one man screw up the details on? Both men are sweating profusely, and the scotch tape they have wrapped about their fingertips to avoid leaving prints 
starting to peel away. Outside, Paddy's beginning to squirm as well. He has half a mind to enter the bank and wipe the whole thing, but he's maybe afraid to wedgie himself with the seatbelt buckle on the way out. That's a little callback to the pistol getting hung up on his underwear in the beginning for those. I've managed a lot to sleep thus far. Well, wake up now, because after 25 excruciating minutes, the armored truck appears. Paddy stops making hemorrhoids for a second, then starts up again as the driver grabs a car and heads inside. Stephen hasn't bothered to bring his infamous watch on this occasion. He knows how long this thing will take once it starts. If all goes as planned, the last 25 minutes have been the hardest part. The guard passes Lionel, who, like Stephen, immediately begins to act more natural. This is how I should feel. The money within reach, confidence stoked to a level of possession within those committed enough to take it. The guard brings a cart of lumpy-looking bags from the safe. Stephen doesn't budge. As a result, Lionel fills out another deposit slip. This exact scenario plays out again a few minutes later. Stephen holds his ground. He knows what he's looking for. Lionel and Patty try to keep their balls out of their throats as the guard exits with bags a second time. The guard returns. This time he comes out of the safe with three solid-looking canvas bags. As he passes the loans department, Stephen retrieves his gun from beneath the papers and strides up behind the guard. Lionel drops his act and pulls his own piece. He's not even looking at the guard. He knows that Stephen has him stiff and is currently disarming the day jobber. This guard is later interviewed and asked if he had any doubt that these men meant business. His first reply is nonverbal, and it's enough. For a moment he can revisit the fear that must have introduced itself to his eyes when Stopwatch Steve told him he'd fucking kill him if he tried to be a hero. Lionel holds down the staff and customers while Stephen disarms the guard. Lionel then walks over and grabs two bags and Steve's briefcase. While Stephen throws the one remaining bag over his shoulder and barks orders at the room, brandishing his gun with the free hand afforded by Lionel's assistance with the briefcase. These are the details. Stephen is more imposing, therefore Lionel assists him in being so. The two are soon at the door and in the back of the getaway car. Patty calmly drives back to a hotel they've rented a room in nearby. Stephen and Lionel have their disguises off and the money transferred out of the burlap sacks into duffels. The money bands are removed and thrown in a garbage bag along with the costume effects. All this is done before Patty descends into the parking garage of their prearranged proximal to the score rental unit. Once in the safety of the garage, the crew transfers their incriminating garbage into another rental, return the original license plates onto their getaway car, and discard the others, of which they'd stolen that day from a similar make and model of vehicle. They strip the fake yellow racing stripes, then Patty goes for a jog. He's wearing workout clothes just for this purpose. He heads to the bank to take in all the hubbub. Stephen would later comment on this saying that Patty was, quote, kind of kinky that way. Later that night, the crew have a little celebration, then initiate their customary final phase. Lionel stays back and does cleanup. He's the most meticulous and paranoid of the crew, so this assignment suits him well. Patty and Steve return to Arizona on a private plane, drinking beers, doing lines, and smoking cigarettes through their helpless grins all the while. They have no idea that their most trusted friend has managed to slip up back in San Diego. Lionel, who has a dumpster timed that he can put the evidence in within minutes of it being emptied by a garbage truck and compacted and carted away into obscurity, is waiting for said truck when a squad car pulls up nearby and begins scrutinizing him. Lionel reacts appropriately. He retrieves his garbage bags full of evidence and places them in the nearest dumpster. He then drives off without an incident. The cop, none the wiser, soon drives away too. Lionel returns both rental vehicles and heads back to Arizona. The bags that he dumped still sit in the errant dumpster and are later discovered by a couple who were searching for aluminum cans 
How romantic. They open up Lionel's bag of trash and discover wigs, money bands, yellow tape, and a rental agreement containing the name Ronald Scott, Lionel's most recent alias. The duty-bound dumpster divers decide to alert the authorities to their find, most definitely not because they're concerned citizens and certainly because they're hoping to collect some kind of reward. This tip is huge for the FBI. The contents of the bag yield a partial fingerprint of one Stephen Reed, an escaped bank robber from Canada. The rental agreement eventually leads him to a photo that looks exactly like another wanted Canadian fugitive, Lionel Wright, a known accomplice of Stephen Reed and Patty Mitchell. The FBI begin tracking down old accomplices of the crew. It doesn't take long for them to find a potential mole, an old friend of Stephen's, former Canadian football leaguer, Donnie Hollingsworth, a.k.a. Big John. Big John had helped the Stopwatch gang obtain weapons once in the U.S. and had been a pivotal connection in getting rid of the gold from the airport heist. The FBI offered the former running back a deal he couldn't pass on. John had recently been caught up in a large crystal meth ring of which he was accused of getting rid of the body of an overdose customer. Stephen Reed is aware of his friend's predicament, and when Big John reaches out to him through the guarded channels of the underworld for 80 grand of bail money, Stephen makes a call to a tap phone, giving up his location and the process. Stephen is soon ambushed by agents while on the way to a flying lesson in Sedona. Lionel is rudely awoken from a deep sleep and cuffed. He's naked. Poor little guy. Patty Mitchell is on vacation. He hears of the arrests, and rather than running, he heads straight to Arizona, where he boldly retrieves the gang's stashed emergency fund. 300 grand. Reed and Wright are each hit in the face with the book. 20 years apiece. They manage to get their sentences reduced by half when it's found that the informant, Big John, is the one who arranged their lawyer for them. Turns out Stephen called him from prison for help, just as Big John so recently had done himself to Stephen. In the end, Stephen Reed serves about six years of his sentence. He's released in 1987, which is incredible to me. Two escapes from prison, millions of dollars stolen and blown over the years, guns pointed at people's faces, their lives threatened, and stopwatch Stephen is free before the age of 40. He's even published a novel, Jack Rabbit Parole. He writes it, Lionel types it, or Reed writes it and Wright reads it. Stephen Reed even attracts the attention of a well-known Canadian poet, Susan Musgrave. The two are married soon after Steve's release and soon have a daughter together. Stephen is my age at the time of his release, 37. If I had known that I could have spent the last 17 years robbing banks and blowing millions of dollars across North America and still make it back before 40 to start a family, hands clean in the eyes of the law, I probably would have given it a shot. Though, for sure, I wouldn't have been able to fucking pull off what he did. Still, this is ludicrous to me. I, I really feel like I'm missing something here. I was under the impression that robbing a bank was like risking your life. My intro barely makes sense now. Anyways, Lionel is released in 1994. He serves about 13 years. He's in hotter water as a result of his cocaine smuggling charges from earlier in his career. There has been not a peep from Lionel since his release. Patty Mitchell a man who deserves a movie based on his life, continues to rob banks while his partners are placed in timeout. He's making up for all those jobs in which he sat nervously in the getaway car. He starts in Florida and robs department stores for the most part. There's a bank in Arkansas that he successfully hits. All of this he does solo. 
He's in his 40s now and showing no sign of slowing down. When he finally slips up and is arrested robbing a department store in Phoenix, Patty must think his run is over. He's on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, number 7 in fact, but he's somehow overlooked and allowed to make bail of around $20,000. It's likely becoming obvious why I didn't make Patty the star of the show here. I need a month to pin down on the details surrounding his technicolorful criminal career. The FBI managed to catch up to Patty in 1983. Finally, the stopwatch gang has been wrangled up, or so it's thought. Patty escapes through an air duct from a maximum security prison and manages to stay in the land for another 10 years. He spends his time in the Philippines marrying a woman and having some kids, He supports his new family by making occasional trips back to the States where he robs more banks and returns flush with cash. It's not until an episode of America's Most Wanted featuring a segment on Patty Mitchell is aired worldwide that Patty is finally brought down. Neighbors blow the whistle and Patty responds by flying back to the U.S. where he attempts to rob another bank in Mississippi to get some startup money. The Irishman's luck, though, finally runs out. Of this last job that was to play out in the small Memphis town of South Haven, Patty would later say, quote, This bank my sister could have robbed. It was an easy, easy bank. There was nothing to it, but I was too much in a hurry. Patty tried an old trick that, unfortunately for him, the town sheriff was familiar with. He called in a bomb threat to City Hall in an attempt to draw all units away from his target. The sheriff responded by sending a squad car to each bank in town, nine in all. Patty was in and out of his bank in less than a minute. It wasn't quick enough, though. He was taken down for good as soon as he exited. Finally outsmarted, he's sentenced to 65 years in prison. Patty Mitchell dies in 2007 from lung cancer. One last quote here from Patty explaining the need to continue robbing banks, even after consistently scoring in excess of 100 grand from each job. Cool. You could spend it in a year. Isn't that terrible? But when you're on the run, you pay 3000 or 4000 a month for an apartment, you eat in restaurants... You buy two or three cars a year because you're always leaving cars behind. Our story, somehow, is not quite finished. Stephen may have been free physically, but inside of him a clock was still ticking. He knew that the straight life just wasn't going to cut it, and soon he was using drugs again to remedy the dull ache within. Quietly, unbeknownst to his wife and child, Stephen has been racking up debts. He had friends in the underworld still, you see, and there was no way they were going to let him become a used car salesman or something like that. It simply wasn't going to happen. Anytime Stephen needed it, he could make a phone call and be spotted a large quantity of drugs. His choice. Pills, weed, heroin, whatever. For a while, Steve manages to flip the product and make some walking around money, but over time he starts to lose it. Steve is an addict and a generous guy. He falls behind, and by the summer of 1999, he needs to recoup north of $100,000 or else soon begin living with a bag floating over his head, slang for a hit being placed on him. The solution to his problem is obvious. The 49-year-old enters a royal bank of Victoria, B.C. on June the 9th, 1999. This isn't vintage stopwatch Steve. He's coked up and armed with an obnoxious shotgun. He's brought along an untrustworthy accomplice. It's fun to imagine how it would have gone with steady old Lionel at his side, but then it becomes clear that Lionel would never have agreed to this insanity. Steve gets out of the bank with close to what he needs, $93,000, 
The getaway vehicle is spotted by responding officers, however, and a dangerous high-speed chase ensues. Stephen is desperate. He hangs out of the window and fires rounds at pursuing officers. A woman on the side of the road is nearly shot by one of his stray bullets. The robbers manage to create some distance thanks to Steve's tactics. They soon pull over and split up. Stephen runs into an apartment building and knocks on a random door. The woman inside asks who it is, and she's told that it's the police. She unlocks the door, and Steve pushes his way in. He promises the frightened woman that she won't be hurt. He then curls up on a couch and trains the gun in a minute on her. They eventually end up sharing some conversation and tea. Meanwhile, officers respond to a tip that their man may be in this apartment somewhere. After knocking on doors, they finally come across a crestfallen and exhausted Stephen Reed. He turns himself over without incident. I'm not going to spin another lame, Time's Up style sentence in your ear. It's not that I'm tired of my pun-loving dad joke approach or anything, which, by the way, is it a dad joke if you've intentionally formed it to be a dad joke? Give me some credit, you fucks. It's more, <laughs> it's more than I'm really not convinced that Stephen is done. He was sentenced to 18 years for armed robbery and attempted murder of a police officer. He did finally receive therapy to help work out his issues that stemmed from his childhood during this last stint. So, in 2013, Stephen was awarded the Victoria Butler Book Prize for his collection of essays. A Crowbar in the Buddhist Garden, Writing from Prison, is the name of the book. Today he's free and not yet 70 years old. His wife, Susan Musgrave, is stuck by him. Something that a lot of people have been judging, but not me. Stephen Reed is a rare breed. Where most claim they're capable of doing wild things and that they would if their life tilted a certain direction, myself included, Stephen Reed can't help but be the real deal. In a world full of pretenders, Stephen is trying to be the same, just from the other side of the fence. A fence that more often than not is top barbed wire. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.